0: I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today's podcast, Combating Angiogenesis, part two of an interview with Philip Rosenfeld on treating neovascular age-related macular degeneration.
1: We've seen a revolution in our ability to treat patients with macular degeneration and a collection of new drugs that are very exciting to study.
0: First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Philip Rosenfeld declares consulting fees from Genentech, Protein Design Labs, Novartis and iTech, and contracted research for Genentech, Novartis, iTech, and Alcon. He discusses off-label use of Avastin and Lucentis. I am a former stockholder of Pfizer. (laughs) You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. This is part two of a discussion with Phil Rosenfeld. In part one, podcast last week, Dr. Rosenfeld described various modalities of treatment for choroidal neovascularization. He described four VEGF-blocking agents, pegaptinib or macugen, bevacizumab, or avastin, ranibizumab, or lucentis, and VEGF-trap. Dr. Rosenfeld has just published results of a study of the effect of systemic bevacizumab on neovascular age-related macular degeneration. We pick up the discussion where we ended last week.
1: In the patients that we have followed for approximately six months or longer, we have 18 patients who have received two or three infusions of Avastin.
0: And what sort of CNV did, did these patients have? These patients had
1: neovascularization that could not be treated with any of the approved therapies. These were lost causes. These patients were going blind and on average in the 18 patients they gained vision not only in one eye but in both eyes because 16 of the 18 patients had had bilateral neovascularization. So that was one of the great benefits of systemic therapy is that you can give one infusion and get a benefit to both eyes. Now We can't really determine the risk of this therapy from just studying 18 patients. We calculated that we would have to study between 400 and 500 patients to identify a doubling of the thromboembolic risk, which is what we were most concerned with. So clearly, if we're going to move forward with this therapy, we need a much larger safety study.
0: Phil, can you tell me what the adverse events were that were identified as part of the study?
1: One of the reasons why we thought a systemic approach would have advantages over an intravitreal approach is that it wouldn't require an injection into the eye, and that would eliminate the risk of endophthalmitis. And indeed, we had no ocular adverse events in this study. There was no inflammation in the eye. We were curious to follow the fellow eyes that were seeing well because there was a theoretical risk, an inhibition of systemic VEGF or VEGF in the coriocapillaris could cause vision loss because of regression of the coriocapillaris. There is a theory that VEGF expressed by the retinal pigment epithelium is actually important for coriocapillaris survival. But we saw absolutely no effect on fellow eyes, the two fellow eyes with good vision. And when you review the cancer population that's been getting chronic Avastin therapy, there has been no effect on the visual acuity in those patients. So at least to the extent that Avastin, a large molecule that binds VEGF, is concerned, uh, it doesn't seem to have any deleterious effect on vision. Phil, can I have you describe what your findings were? In the 18 patients that have been followed for at least six months, now, these results were just recently reported at the annual Society of Retina Specialists meeting in Montreal. And, and, it, are, and are
0: not part of the, the uh, uh, paper that was just published?
1: Are not part of the paper. Yeah. Right. The paper reported the first nine patients through three months, but the results are almost identical. In the 18 patients followed for 24 months, the study eye, and that's the eye that we designated to begin with, the eye that we were following and basing all retreatment the study eye gained, on average, 13 letters, or almost three lines of vision, and the fellow eyes gained 17 letters of vision, or more than three lines of vision. And that's fascinating from our perspective because these fellow eyes had more chronic disease, and while they gained more vision on average, the vision gain took a longer period of time to be observed, which leads us to suspect that there was more chronic disease there and once the fluid was eliminated from the back of the eye it took longer for the photoreceptors to recover also we saw a pretty good association with not only an improvement of vision but also a decrease in what we call central retinal thickness as measured by optical coherence tomography on average by month 24 there's a decrease in 112 microns in the study eye and in the fellow eye there's a decrease of 66 microns so that was more chronic disease in the fellow eye and there was less fluid there to begin with and that's why we saw less fluid resolved but at the end of those six months both eyes looked great with no active neovascularization and decreased retinal thickness, no fluid accumulating in the, in the back of the eye.
0: How quickly did patients show improvement?
1: We saw an improvement using optical coherence tomography within one week. And that was also our experience using the drug ranibizumab, the drug that's derived from Avacin, and that drug's injected into the vitreous. So whether we inject an anti-VEGF drug into the vitreous or give it systemically, using optical coherence tomography, we can see a change within one week of therapy. Why, why do you think that, that you get a change that quickly? I think what it shows you is that VEGF plays a very prominent role, not only in blood vessels growing, but also the increased permeability of the existing blood vessels in the retina. In fact, that may be the major role of this therapy in cutting down the permeability so that you get better macular contour and realignment of the photoreceptors so that they can function better.
0: Just to reinforce that point, as, as you said, VEGF has many functions. One important one is, is that it, it will increase greatly the permeability of Vessels, and that uh, that you that you postulate that in blocking Vegf, that you decrease the permeability of of the of the vessels, and that that perhaps this is what leads to the to the rapid thinning of the macula, the, the decrease in macular thickening.
1: I think that's correct. Vascular endothelial growth factor was first identified by Dvorak in Boston as vascular permeability factor, and it was only later that two groups, one working on vascular endothelial growth factor and one working on this vascular permeability factor, figured out that they were working on the same protein. So the permeability properties of VEGF are very, very important, I think, in the vision loss that we see in neovascular AMD.
0: Now, Phil, did improvement in the acuity correlate with improvement in retinal thickness?
1: What we saw was a very good association between the decrease in the retinal thickness and the improvement of vision. What we're finding in macular degeneration and in diabetes in any disease that causes thickening of the macula, like in branch retinal vein occlusions or central retinal vein occlusions, the correlation with vision improvement as the retina thins really depends upon how healthy the photoreceptors are. For example, in patients with central retinal vein occlusions that have massive macular edema, but the vein occlusion is not ischemic, we can see a very good correlation between resolution of the macular edema and improvement in vision. But if there's been chronic injury to the photoreceptors, so that even if we get rid of the retinal edema, patients aren't going to see, then you wouldn't expect any correlation. And the same is true for age-related macular degeneration. If you have a lot of fluid in the macula, but you've already formed a fibrotic scar and there's irreversible damage to the photoreceptors, you can get rid of the fluid. You can prevent further vision loss. And the patient can tell you the distortion is gone and that they're seeing better, but you won't see a dramatic improvement in vision. If you can catch these lesions early enough, before this irreversible photoreceptor damage, then there's excellent correlation between resolving the fluid and improving the vision.
0: In which patients would bevacizumab therapy be contraindicated? I'm thinking now of, you know, maybe hypertensive patients, who, who would you not use? Would you be hesitant to use this, this therapy with?
1: Currently, we are not using systemic bevacizumab therapy on anybody. And that is because we have found that Bevacizumab, Avastin, can be injected into the eye using a dose that's 400 to 500-fold less than the dose we would give systemically. And although I originally started down the path of using systemic Bevacizumab as a way to avoid an intravitreal injection, what I have found is that if I can obtain similar results and not Expose the patient to these high levels of anti-VEGF therapy, then I'm willing to take the risk of endophthalmitis over the potential risk of hypertension and thromboembolic events. Now, that being said, we have a negligible rate of endophthalmitis at the Baskin Palmer Institute. We have reviewed the last five years in which we have done 7,000 intravitreal injections. We have never had a case of endophthalmitis or a case of retinal detachment. So, in our hands, an intravitreal injection appears to be very safe. So, with that knowledge in hand, and the knowledge that we're seeing similar effects when we deliver the drug into the vitreous, it's hard to justify giving a high dose of Avastin systemically to our patients. And what's even more interesting is when we've treated our patients who received systemic Avastin therapy and now develop recurrent neovascularization. when we treat them with the intravitreal Avastin, we see an identical response to when we gave the drug systemically. What we don't know is how long that response lasts because we've only been using the drug intravitreally since late May, early June. So currently, we're following our patients we're offering them intravitreal avastin if they develop recurrent neovascularization and we'll have a better idea of how long the therapy
0: lasts over the next few months. Can you can you share with me some of the results that you've gotten with the intravitreal bevacizumab and I've I've got two follow-on questions that I'll just ask now and and you can you can kind of cover cover them all. One of them is we discussed at the very start of this interview what the bevacizumab intravenous half-life is, and I'm wondering if you think that the half-life intravitreally is going to be different. And the, the the second follow-up question, as I say, I'm just going to ask them all now, is you had a concern at the start of this interview once more with uh, large molecule penetrance, um, if it's given intra, intravitreally. And I'm wondering, in light of the results that you're, that you're going to talk about, how you make the two things drive. Approximately three
1: months ago, we postulated that bevacizumab could be delivered into the intravitreal cavity. And there might be certain advantages to doing that. First, it would be very inexpensive to treat a patient with intravitreal Avastin, since one milligram of that drug costs $5.50 compared to one milligram of macogen, which costs $3,300. Another advantage of Avastin is that it would appear to have a longer half-life in the vitriol cavity than the smaller molecule Lucentis. And this is based on some research that Genentech published in the 1990s. Demonstrating that the half life of avastin or bevacizumab in the eye is twice as long as the half life of an antibody fragment. They actually didn't look at the molecule avastin, they looked at another molecule called herceptin, but it's a full length antibody, and they compared it against an antibody fragment, and they demonstrated that it had twice the half life. The disadvantage of a full length antibody, and this is a theoretical disadvantage, is that it would probably not penetrate the retina as well as an antibody fragment. Thus, it wouldn't get to the retinal pigment epithelial layer as well and bind up as much VEGF as well. That is a theoretical argument. But in my review of the literature and in my discussions with colleagues that worked with Avastin in the 1990s, it became clear that it was never used in humans for the treatment of neovascularization. It is interesting that there was a project in which Avastin was used in the eye of an experimentally induced monkey model of neovascular glaucoma and it seemed to be quite effective in preventing iris neovascularization when it was injected into the eye but that wouldn't require retinal penetration since it would bind up the VEGF in the vitreal cavity and prevent it from getting into the anterior segment. What that did tell me is that intravitreal Avastin didn't cause excessive inflammation and was tolerated in a monkey model. So that led us to the hypothesis that Avastin might be beneficial in neovascular age-related macular degeneration. So for those patients of ours that were losing vision on approved therapies or could not be candidates for any of the approved therapies, we offered them as salvage therapy an intravitreal injection of Avastin. And much to our surprise, we saw a dramatic response using optical coherence tomography, very similar to the responses that we saw with systemic Avastin and with intravitreal ranibizumab or Lucentis. Since that time, we've injected quite a few patients who were losing vision on approved therapies. Our count now is over 150 patients, and we have uniformly seen this beneficial response. Other people have started doing this as well with similar reports of benefit now throughout the world. So theoretically, the Avastin molecule should not penetrate the retina as well, but obviously, based on these results, it's penetrating the retina well enough. Another possibility is that the VEGF is diffusing out of the retina and binding the Avastin that remains in the intravitreal cavity. Whatever the mechanism of action, these preliminary observations suggest that, in fact, binding VEGF with Avastin when delivered intravitreally can show some beneficial effects. And we're seeing these beneficial effects not only in patients with neovascular age-related macular degeneration, but also in patients with macular edema from vein occlusions and in patients with diabetes in macular edema. And we published two case reports in July, one in a patient with neovascular age-related macular degeneration and another in a patient with a central retinal vein occlusion. We were very pleased with the result, particularly with the vein occlusion population, because many of our patients are getting intravitrocanalog to treat these conditions and they're developing steroid-induced glaucoma. And In fact, the patient we treated with an intravitreal dose of Avacin had developed steroid-induced glaucoma and could no longer get additional steroid therapy. So it may very quickly replace steroid as the treatment of choice in these diseases that are associated with macular edema. Avacin gives us the ability to use an inexpensive anti-VEGF probe in all these ocular diseases and ask the question, is this disease caused by vascular endothelial growth factor or certain aspect of the disease? And I think from our results, it seems very likely that the macular edema that we see in vein occlusions and the macular edema that we see in diabetes is most likely a
0: VENGF-mediated process. How often do you have to give intravitreal bevacizumab? We don't know how often the treatment needs to be given.
1: We don't know how durable the treatment effect is at this time. This is why it's very important to set up prospective studies. Everything that we've done now has been off-label use of an FDA-approved drug as salvage therapy. We've had extensive discussions with our patients. We've told them that we really don't know the long-term effects of this drug. We don't know the side effect profile of this drug, but we're offering it to them as salvage therapy because they're losing vision. We need to do prospective studies. We're in the process of submitting a proposal to the FDA for an IND that's an investigation new drug number so that we can proceed with these prospective studies. And This is of interest not only in the United States, obviously, but particularly because of the cost-effectiveness of this potential therapy, it's of interest all over the world right now. What are you doing in your own practice now? Currently, for the treatment of neovascular age-related macular degeneration, I am offering my patients as first-line therapy the FDA-approved therapies of either photodynamic therapy or macogen therapy. I'm not offering a Avastin therapy as first-line therapy, but I am offering it if patients continue to lose vision while on approved therapies.
0: Now, Phil, the question about what you do in your own practice is my traditional wrap-up question, but I I have a question that I want to ask that I think is is particular to, to this subject and uh, and to and to this paper, I I think brings brings it up really well, which is that anti-VEGF therapy is changing so rapidly that it's very easy to develop an experimental protocol. And by the time that you're halfway through the the protocol, you've got you've got other thoughts. I mean, as as you did now that that you started out with intravenous therapy and then realized that you could put patients at less uh, extraocular risk by giving the medication intra- intravitreally. How, how concerned do you feel that it's going to be difficult to do a prospective study, a long-term study, uh, on any of these medications because new therapies and new avenues for, for using therapies uh, are, are constantly coming out? I think your point is well taken and over the last couple of years we've seen
1: a revolution in our ability to treat patients with macular degeneration and a collection of new drugs that are very exciting to study. The one drug that's particularly exciting is Lucentis ranibizumab which is the other Genentech drug that's derived from Avastin. The question that I really want to see addressed is how Avastin compares to Lucentis we are not going to be able to ask that question until Lucentis is approved and that probably won't happen for a year or longer until that happens until we have Lucentis so that we can compare it directly to Avastin we need to perform some studies so that we have a better understanding of the safety associated with Avastin therapy and the durability associated with Avastin therapy, it seems very unlikely that there will be any other drugs in the near future, any other combination of therapies in the near future, that will be as good as Lucentis and potentially as good as Avastin. So I think we're looking at the two top therapies right now. Lucentis clearly has gone through Phase three studies We're yet to hear the results from the final phase 3 study, but we're all anticipating that those results are going to be positive. We will definitely have a treatment in Lucentis in which patients will see better, on average, after they receive the therapy. And the question that everyone's going to have is how that therapy compares to a very inexpensive therapy known as Avastin. And that's the study that needs to get done. One of the advantages right now is that we don't have any treatments that are FDA approved that improve vision so we need to move quickly with the avastin studies to get a better idea of the durability of the therapy the safety of the therapy and then we can move quickly on the comparative study with lucentis once lucentis is approved
0: well phil thank you very much
1: yeah it's a pleasure doing this with you
0: philip j rosenfeld is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. His paper, Systemic Bevacizumab Therapy for Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration, 12-Week Results of an Uncontrolled Open Label Clinical Study, appears in the June 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Rosenfeld or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.